Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your forever word. We thank you that uh, this word that you have spoken so long ago in 1 Kings resounds for us today. It still remains the word of the living God, a word that is sure as we hear throughout this passage. And so we pray, Father, for you to prepare our hearts to receive this trustworthy and true word. Humble us, we pray. And lead us to hear and to heed the word that you speak to us this day for your glory and for our good. Amen. Well, we're looking together at 1 Kings 17 to 19. We're in week two of this short series where we're seeing this part of God's word uh, raising the temperature of our passion to follow God and his ways with our life, all of our life, uh, to do that wholeheartedly. Uh, Last week in 1 Kings 17, if you uh, heard that last week, we, we saw that to be passionate about something in life, you have to be sure that it's trustworthy. You have to be sure that it is true. And we saw that God's word to us uh, through the life of Elijah, through the life of the widow of Zarephath, is trustworthy and true. And so are his ways. And so today in chapter 18, uh, we ask this question. If we know God is trustworthy and true, if we are sure his ways are worth our wholehearted commitment because of that trustworthiness, What would single-minded, full-hearted commitment to the Lord look like? What would it look like to follow his ways with our life? It is a key question for us because I suspect if you're anything like me, uh, even though we know God's word is true, even though we know he is trustworthy, even though we know he is calling us to give our hearts fully to him and to his ways... Uh, We find ourselves stuck so often in life. We find ourselves stuck with multiple commitments, multiple devotions that that pull and and tug at our hearts. And uh, we end up committed and trusting other things other than the Lord. That is true for all of us. Uh, Let me illustrate that by uh, telling you about one of my uh, oldest and best friends. Uh, His name is Scott. Uh, I love Scott uh, for, for many reasons, but perhaps uh, one of the, the chief reasons is that he has been uh, responsible for many uh, sermon illustration. His life is one living, breathing sermon illustration. Virtually every day of Scott's life is worth repeating. Um, he's currently in, uh, in uh, gospel ministry in South Africa, so hopefully he won't hear this. But let me tell you about one such day in Scott's life. Uh, in our teenage years, we went camping together many times. And on one particular trip, uh, we'd ended uh, the, the hike of the first night uh, camping on what we thought was a hill, but ended up being, well, quite a high hill and, uh, well, on a cliff face, essentially. And there we were uh, as night descended, cooking dinner together around the fire. And it occurred to Scott, who's a bit of an outdoorsy type guy, that we didn't have enough firewood to get beyond dinner and, and into the night. So he volunteered to go and get some firewood for us. Uh, the rest of us sitting there chatting around the campfire. Ten minutes go by, still no Scott. And I guess we just concluded that he's so committed to the task, he's gone to get lots of firewood to uh, make sure we have enough. Uh, Twenty minutes go by, still no Scott. And then eventually 30 minutes go by and still no Scott. Now the chatter around the campfire uh, grows quiet and people are getting worried about Scott. And then uh, in the silence now around the campfire, we can hear in the distance this faint voice. It's Scott's voice, and he's calling out our names. And so we head to where we think the voice is coming from, and we get to, well, now we discover the, the edge of the cliff 
uh, where we had camped. And uh, well, we, we look around and we, we can't see Scott anywhere. And yet we can hear this faint voice calling out our names. And eventually we look over the edge of the cliff face. And there, if you can imagine sort of one of those cartoon-like trees sticking out of the cliff, uh, there is Scott clinging for his very life to this tree on the edge of the cliff, over the cliff. And uh, in his other arm, though, he's clinging tightly to the firewood that he has gone to collect. And so there is Scott clinging to his very life uh, to this tree and then with the firewood in the other hand. And it took us ages to convince him of the logical, obvious thing to do, which was to let go of the firewood so that we could reach down and lift him up. Now, in one sense, it's easy to laugh at Scott, and I regularly laugh at Scott, uh, and think, what sort of fool would hang on to the firewood in a moment like that? Now, I don't know what it was, whether it was the shock or the panic of it, but I suspect all of us, all too often in life, do that very same thing. We are sure we want to go God's way. We are sure he is trustworthy and true. We're sure as he calls us to give our whole hearts to him and to trust him fully with our lives. We know all of this, and yet we still hang on to other things for security. We grip just as tightly as Scott was doing with that firewood. We think uh, these things are a safe bet. I need them in my life. I need to pursue these things as much as I pursue the things of God. We consider, alternatively, going God's way wholeheartedly as, well, a risky option. Uh, perhaps a costly option. Now, if we are sure God tells the truth, then what we are reading here in 1 Kings 17 to 19 is that hedging our bets in this way is not the way God calls us to live life. And in fact, it's just as foolish as Scott on the edge of that cliff. If we want to follow the Lord passionately, we're, we're going to see in 1 Kings 18 what that would look like up close, what the risks are, what the costs are of doing that. So come with me to 1 Kings 18. And if you were here as we looked at 1 Kings 17, uh, we, we now jump forward three years in the story. You might remember that uh, the story in 1 Kings 17 was the announcement that there was going to be no rain on the land, that there would be a drought, a drought of rain, but also a drought of God's word, because the people of God had stopped listening. And so now we're three years on, three years that God has withheld that blessing, the blessing of rain, the, the blessing of his word. And of course, only one of those, the king, King Ahab, is worried about. That's the rain and the lack thereof. Three miserable years where their dependence, not just on the Lord, but uh, well, you may remember they had grown to depend on another God, Baal, the false God, Baal, uh, a fertility God, a rain God. And yet for three years, he provided absolutely nothing. Israel is in the grip of a severe drought and their new God, Baal, is presumably asleep. And then we're told right at the start of this chapter, 1 Kings 18, verse 1, there's a sheer moment of grace. A break in the weather. Verse 1, Elijah is going to go again before King Ahab, as he did at the start of chapter 17. And this time he's going to announce that the drought is over. He's going to announce that he's going to send rain after these three long years. That's what we're told there at the very start of chapter 18. But verse 2 onwards, the, the story flashes back to before this moment where the break in the weather will come. And our focus is on two people in this land of Israel. King Ahab and his servant, his administrator, Obadiah. And it's these two figures who are going to help us understand what following the Lord would involve when it goes for a walk in this world, when, it, when we live it out. Let's have a look together. Verse 3, King Ahab summons Obadiah, his servant. And at this point in verse 3, uh, the Bible tells us something really important about Obadiah. 
Obadiah is not only committed to Ahab, he is committed to that. He's the chief administrator. But there's another king whom Obadiah is loyal to. And his commitment to this other king is far stronger than his commitment to Ahab. Do you see how it's described there in verse 3? He is devoted to the Lord. Committed, heart and soul. Uh, Not double-mindedly, single-mindedly committed to God. He believes God. He believes his word. He's a follower of the Lord. And so here's our first figure in this chapter, Obadiah. He has two loyalties to King Ahab and to the Lord, but only one love, one devotion. He is single-minded when it comes to that. He is devoted to the Lord. Now, in contrast, we meet the other figure that we actually met last week, King Ahab. He is a king. He is in charge. He gets to set the course of his own life. But he is a king in the Lord's kingdom, Israel. That's where he rules. He rules under another king. And he is bound to follow the Lord. He is bound to follow that king. But over time, as we saw last week, he's he's bound himself to another as well. His heart has gone to another. Jezebel, his wife, has brought her god, Baal, into the kingdom. And as we saw last week, it is that loyalty that has won his heart. And with that comes devastating consequences. This divided heart of Ahab leads to disaster. Do you see it there in verse 4? Ahab meekly watches on as Jezebel arranges the killing of the Lord's prophets. I mean, it's said very matter-of-factly, but it's it's a horrific scene. Uh, Here is how utterly compromised Ahab's heart is. As as the spokesmen, as those who would speak God's word to the people, are one by one eliminated by Jezebel in the most horrific circumstances, he stands there silent, utterly compromised, multiple commitments and a wandering heart. Now, that's the, uh, the two figures before us in chapter 18, and they, they paint, if you like, the extremes of the spectrum. But let me ask you, how about you? Who or what are you committed to as we head into the final months of 2021? In 2021, uh, to quote uh, the earlier song we listened to, Be Thou My Vision, who is first in your heart? I wonder if you know who it is. Uh, it, it is, as uh, Jesus says in, in the Gospels, he says, in the end, you can't serve two masters you can't love two things you've got to choose what your one great passion is going to be and so let me invite you as we go through this series to test that consider your own life Uh, consider the details of the coming week your actions your words your priorities where is your heart right now well back to Obadiah and his heart is clear his heart remains with the Lord and so do you see what he does in verse 4 as this horrific scene starts to play out as the prophets are being killed we're told at great personal risk he hides a hundred of these prophets in two caves he at this moment despite his commitment to King Ahab chooses the Lord over Ahab he chooses the Lord over Baal the Lord over well his own safety And like the widow last week, here is another picture of what fearless faith in the Lord looks like. I think we're starting to see in these chapters that saying that I trust the Lord is not merely mental assent or theoretical assent to some truths about God that we may say in a creed. Uh, Trust in the Lord goes for a walk in the world. It has a heart. It beats. It shows up in our life. That was true of Elijah. It was true of the widow last week. And here it is true of Obadiah. So let me ask you again, how about you? Where does your trust, your devotion to the Lord show itself 
in the details of your life? Does your trust in the Lord have a heart? Does it have legs in the real world, in the detail of your life? Uh, uh, Put it this way, uh, the picture of Obadiah here in verse 4, are you a risk taker for the Lord? Does your trust impact your life that much? Uh, Does does it change things in your life? What, What does it change? Does it have a cost? I find this hard uh, to live that sort of life, uh, even though I, in my job, am surrounded by Christians almost all the time. But I know that the majority of you, as we gather online like this, are in situations not unlike Obadiah's. You're in the heart of things in this world. You're in offices or work sites or schools or in your social groups or in your family, in a, in, a, in a world that is not going God's way, that's heart is not devoted to him. It's very hard to live wholeheartedly for him in the midst of the world that we live and work. In a world of self-assured, self-made, self-focused people with their own idols, be they Baal or wealth or health or home or happiness or reputation or promotion or sport or, or whatever it might be. In the midst of all of that, as you live in those areas, as you uh, live out the commitments you have in those areas, God wants you to be devoted to him in these places. You have many commitments, but one great passion. And so let me ask again, who or what has your heart at the moment? Well, back to our story, verses 5 and 6, we do get a sense of just how desperate things have become in Israel. This decline over three years of the drought would have been slow but relentless, constant. And by this stage, they are in desperate trouble and they have absolutely no answers, no, no provision, no source of life, it seems, on the land. And that's Ahab here as we get to verses 5 and 6. And our world is actually full of scenes like that, whether it be the slow creep of what we've experienced in the last few years of the pandemic or our own sense of powerlessness before things like climate change, or perhaps even closer to home, those moments where we feel our life, uh, where we thought we were in control, suddenly spins out of control for some reason, and when we, we feel powerless at the end of our reserves, at the end of our answers. Where do you go in those moments? Where do you go in those moments if your trust, your surety, your confidence, your heart is in other things other than the Lord? Where do you go? Well, Ahab has lost sight of where to go. Here in the dead end of his resources, like Elijah reached with that child in his arms in 1 Kings 17, but unlike Elijah, who cries out to the Lord in desperation, there's no cry from Ahab's lips. Baal, the impotent rain god, has not provided. And yet he ignores the living God. Instead, you see his futile plan in verse 6. It is a futile scene. It reminds me like something out of a T.S. Eliot poem. He basically says to Obadiah, how about this? How about both of us stand in the middle of Israel and we'll, we'll stand back to back and then we'll head in opposite directions in search of, well, something, some answer, some provision other than going to the Lord, some sign of life. Let me ask you again, what, what do you do if your trust is in the Lord and you live in a world like this? What would it mean to wholeheartedly follow him in a world like this? I mean, if as you listen to this passage today, if you are sure that the Lord is God, if you're sure that he speaks the truth, 
that he, when he says he loves you and that he has forgiven you and that he has prepared a future for you that no, nothing can take away. If you're sure of these things, do you know what it would mean to live out that trust in this world? Or perhaps if you're listening and you, actually you're still weighing up things in your heart, you're not sure whether God is telling the truth or whether he is trustworthy, uh, whether he's worth that level of commitment. Surely it would be worth knowing what it would look like to live wholeheartedly for him. Well, with that in mind, let's go back to our story and see it. We haven't seen it in Ahab, but we do see it in Obadiah. Verse 7, Obadiah goes on this fruitless search through the land and then another moment of grace in the midst of the drought, a drought of water and a drought of God's word. There in the distance on the horizon, do you see who it is? It's Elijah. I mean, what a moment for Obadiah as a follower of the Lord in a, in a land bereft of people whose hearts are committed to the Lord. There is Elijah, one like him, a fellow traveler. He can scarcely believe it. Do you see what he says? Is it really you? But there's hardly any time for long catch-ups. Elijah is on task. Remember the first verse. He's going to the king to speak God's word again. He is set on Yahweh's mission. And now Obadiah is going to get swept up in that again. Uh, he's supposed to stop this pointless search for life and the land. And instead, he's told here he has to go to the king that he, whom he serves because the true king is about to speak to King Ahab through Elijah. And have a look, verse 9. Have a look at Obadiah's reaction. He knows instantly the cost of the mission that he's been called on as he shows his devotion to the Lord. He knows his life is on the line if he does this. Do you see how he describes it in verses 10 to 12? Uh, you know, he, he says to Elijah, I have searched everywhere for you. Every nation, he's looked for you. He's insisted that they tell, tell him whether you're there. And Obadiah knows, though, that Elijah's steps are, are guided by God's word. It's guided by God's spirit. At any moment, the spirit of the Lord could send Elijah off on another journey somewhere. Uh, What's going to happen to Obadiah if he goes back to King Ahab and he says that Elijah is here and he's coming to speak to you and, and, and then Elijah does the runner somewhere else? Why risk it? His life is at stake. Well, if you want to know what following the Lord will involve, then listen very carefully to how this plays out. Obadiah's question there, do you see it in verse 9? What have I done wrong to be asked to do this? I mean, it's a similar question to the one the widow asked. Remember in chapter 17, verse 18, when, when uh, her son's life is taken, why, did, why pick on me? And yet there's a difference here. You remember the, the woman last week, she was able to pinpoint her own sin, but Obadiah has done nothing wrong. Nothing at all to deserve this. He's been faithful throughout. He, he's on the path of wholehearted faith. So how has it ended at this point where he'd be asked to take this risk? And you see there in verses 12 and 13, he cites his CV as proof of his faithfulness. And he doesn't exaggerate it either. He doesn't say anything more than the narrator says back in verses 3 and 4. It took incredible guts, huge risk to do what he did, do, uh, to hide these, these prophets in the caves. And, and that wasn't a one-off action for Obadiah. We're told here that he has worshipped the Lord from his youth. He's always been on this path. And so why this new cost? Shouldn't trusting God lead to blessing and a smooth path? Why is it that this faithful follower is now finding himself getting into harder and harder situations? 
Well, to understand that, and just before we uh, close, I want to take you to the New Testament to see how this same path shows itself there. In in a a remarkable passage in in Luke chapter 9, it's worth flicking if you've got your Bible with you to Luke chapter 9. And we're going to see there what following the Lord looks like and why it does involve cost. In this short passage in Luke 9, verses 57 to 62, Uh, we we get the answer to that question, why following the Lord involves cost. And we see it through three potential followers that come up to Jesus and say, I'm going to follow you. And to each of them, Jesus says something very hard, but also something incredibly comforting. I reckon if you want to know what following Jesus will involve in your life, you, you need to know two things. Here's the first thing you need to know, and we see this in Luke 9. You need to know where Jesus is going. If you say, I follow him, you need to know where he's going. And where is he going? Well, Luke 9.51 says this. He, he set his face to Jerusalem. He's heading there, nowhere else. He's heading to the cross. It's repeated throughout uh, chapter 9, but all the way actually through, uh, through uh, Luke. Uh, let me read just a couple of verses from Luke 18. This is where he's going as you follow him. Uh, speaking of Jesus, it says, He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock on him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and then kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Now take that in for a minute. You who say, I follow the Lord Jesus. Here's the heart of what making Jesus your one great passion looks like. That's the path he's heading on. That's the path you find yourself on if you follow him. Uh, Let me read these verses from uh, Luke chapter 9, verse uh, 23 onwards. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Then he said to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. Do you see what Jesus is saying? To follow the Lord is to follow him on the path of the cross. It's no surprise what's being asked of Obadiah here as a faithful follower of the Lord. If you follow Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, you are following him on a costly path. Now, this quote by Frederick Buchner has been one of my favourites for many years. Let me read it to you. It makes this point for us. Vehicle inspection stickers used to have printed on the back, drive carefully. The life you save may be your own. This is the wisdom of men in a nutshell. What God says, on the other hand, is the life you save is the life you lose. In other words, the life you clutch, hoard, guard and place safe with is in the end a life worth little to anybody including yourself to bring the point home god shows us a man who gave his life away to the extent of dying a national disgrace without a penny in the bank or a friend to his name in terms of men's wisdom he was a perfect fool and anybody who thinks they can follow him without making something like the same kind of fool of himself is laboring not under a cross but under a delusion And that's illustrated by these three potential followers that come before Jesus in Luke 9, verse 57 to 62. I I won't read them for you now. I encourage you to have a look at them. He says something incredibly hard to each of them and then something incredibly comforting. The, The hard thing is, well, what we've just seen, that he's going to the cross. That's where they need to follow him. But here's the comforting thing. The other thing Jesus says, 
Not just you need to know where he's going, you need to know who you are following. And this is of great comfort. Jesus says to each of these potential followers in Luke 9, he just says these two words, follow me. You see the comfort? Jesus offers himself as a companion on the journey. That's why this path is worth your heart, your soul and all, because you are with him. Now this is how the American pastor John Piper puts it. Just think of it. This is the creator of the universe, the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting, the one born of a virgin as the holy one of God, the one who is perfect in his life, the one who triumphed over sin and death and hell and any demon you will ever meet. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this, Jesus says to you, as you ponder the way forward, follow me. He doesn't say, no, you go there while I stay here in Jerusalem, but I'm going there, follow me. I'll be with you to the very end of the age. I will never leave you or forsake you. And here's the number of it. If you are sure God is telling the truth, if you're sure his word can be trusted, then it is a no-brainer. It's worth risking it all. I wonder if you've ever played musical chairs. I suspect for most of us, not for decades, but uh, you'll remember how the game works. You, you go round and round in the circle, the music plays, and slowly more and more chairs are taken away, and you've got to, when the music stops, sit down on a chair. And Well, here's the thing. If you follow Jesus, you are following the one you want to be with when the music stops as it will for us all. It's worth being with Jesus on the road to the cross because he is the one safe place to be at the end of that path. Luke 9 says, are you with Obadiah? Do you follow Jesus with your heart or has something else got it? Why risk the cost? Why obey his command to follow? Well, simple. It's same as the widow from chapter 17, same as the answer given to Obadiah here in verse 15 of our chapter There's that word again. It's actually all the way through the chapter. If you look, sure, it's sure. Because this bet, trusting the Lord, is a sure thing because his word is true. Well, here's the thing. In a world where little is sure, God says, my word and my ways are sure. So trust them with every sinew and synapse of your heart. Take that trust for a walk into your homes, into your workplaces, into your world. Live a life that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, let me pray for us. Father God, give us insight, we pray, to see where our hearts have become divided in their trust. Sometimes our confidence is in you. Sometimes it's in, well, far more in the things of this world. We repent of this double-minded lifestyle. Teach us to see how fruitless worldly faith is. Teach us to see how trustworthy and true you are. Lead us on to wholehearted faith for your glory and for our good. Amen.